0: talking about it this is hamilton today with scott thompson on 900 chml hey it's hamilton today i'm curtis thompson scott's son will weber is on the board Willerskin inviting the guests in the newsroom dina weeks and dave woodard a hot one in the hammer today summer is back Ice scream you scream we all scream for ice cream Here's Scott <laughs> Oh, man.
1: Once a kid, always a kid. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Weber on the board, spinning the Martha and the Vandellas heat wave just apropos today. How is that? My goodness. Uh, Depending on where you are in the city, whether you're down by the lake or up on the mountain, anywhere from 29 to 32 degrees uh, in the hammer. So uh, there you go. Uh, Summer has uh, unofficially arrived once we uh, hit 30. Is anybody okay with that? we ask the judges? Judges? Yes, the judges say that is uh, that's a good unofficial start to summer. Uh, hope you're having a great day. It is awfully warm out there, so uh, we forget. But this time of the year, be aware that there are those that uh, perhaps needed a little extra help at this time of the year or when things get uh, this warm. So uh, check on those that uh, that certainly need it. Uh, I'm sure that would be appreciated. And the dogs in the cars, please. Let's not find out tomorrow that there's kids or dogs that have been left in cars. Uh, because somebody has just run in and then got caught at the mall and the next thing you know uh, there's people breaking windows trying to save things, uh, pets and people. So uh, again, it's been it's sort of like the first snowstorm, you know, when you get the first big snowstorm of the year and everybody's, you know, oh, I got my scraper, oh, I got the snows on, oh, I got my rubber boots. Uh, same kind of thing. You just got to use care and caution because uh, it is getting kind of warm out there, and it is the time of the year. So uh, and and as I heard somebody say earlier today, uh, it's the time when uh, we usually get out and about, and it's the first time that we've been able to do it in a couple of years as uh, the pandemic has gripped us so uh, I think a lot of people a lot of people are excited that uh, the weather is finally turning nice and we're uh, we are where we are and uh, despite travel uh, uh, restrictions not being lifted and extended to the end of the month we'll talk about that a little later on in the show uh, we're still doing and making great strides when it comes to uh, alleviating this pandemic and uh, and moving on with life so uh, good news all around Alright, we got a jam-packed show coming up. Hope you hang around for it. Earlier this morning, uh, on Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamprin, Andrea Horbath, uh, it was on. Uh, we've invited her on, but, um, Man, the schedule seems to be pretty jammed when it comes to the Scott Thompson show. Uh, that's okay. That's fine. We, we're an equal opportunity, though. So, you know, if anybody out there out there that wants to come on, uh, feel free. Uh, Mr. Del Duca and Mr. Schreiner have been on the show. Uh, but uh, And, you know, Mr. Ford in the past, of course. but uh, And Ms. Horbath in the past, but not uh, during this election campaign. All right. Here's what Andrew Horbath had to say earlier today with Rick Zamprin on affordability and board- Boy, it, it's, um, oh, I'll just shut up and let her do the talking. Go ahead.
2: So getting auto insurance down, get, outlying, gouging at the gas pumps. I know there's some ads going on that we're going to raise gas prices. That is not the case. We're the only party that's going to take on big oil and gas uh, and, and cap our gas prices at the pump. These are the things that will make a difference for people. If you don't have to pay out of your pocket uh, for, your, for your dental care or your kids' fillings, That makes a big difference. If you don't have to pay out of your pocket uh, and you actually have access to the mental health services you need, uh, it will really make a difference because we know mental health pain is as serious as physical health pain.
1: Uh, All right. And on, uh, you know, capping gas prices, my goodness, we've got an issue with prices being what they are. It's very similar. The gas, the energy situation is very similar to the uh, housing situation. High demand, low supply. So how capping something uh, would work, uh, I'm not sure. (laughs) I don't sure the economics on that. Uh, Here's what uh, Andrew Horvath had to say about beating Doug Ford.
2: As we get to election day, I'm just to the people of ontario if you want to stop the cuts if you wanted to defeat doug ford this time and not let him have a chance at making life even harder because we know how hard it's got even over the last four years since he's been in office uh then then we have to come together we have to come together behind the ndp this time uh, because we are the party that can defeat doug ford
1: and hope hope and more hope we need some hope
2: there's hope that young people can dream, uh, can, can get back to their dreams of actually owning their own home. Uh, there's hope that tenants don't have to worry about being rent evicted and ending up on the street. There's hope that our kids, our children's hospitals can be funded and, uh, and staffed in a way that support our kids. Uh, there's hope that our school repair backlog can be fixed. There's hope that young people particularly, but every Ontarian that needs mental health care will get that mental health care with their OHIP card as well as dental care. And prescription drugs. These are things we can do. We can do these things together, and that's what this election's about for me.
1: What is really hopeful, and 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 and, and I don't mean to to make a mockery here, but it, what is really hopeful to me is that even the Greens, the NDP, and the Liberals are now joining the Conservatives and agree with them that we need 1.5 million homes built in the next 10 years. Asking the burning question, why wasn't that done 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago? but here we are. All right. Uh, I don't know if you've been outside today. If you haven't, boy, uh, you really should because it is uh, absolutely beautiful, but it is warm. It is a hot one. It is a scorcher and uh, probably the first uh, hot day that we've had here in the Hammer uh, over 30 degrees where we're uh, we're really starting to notice it and feel uh, that we need some heat warnings. And, you know, we forget, as, as, as I mentioned a bit earlier, it's much like the first uh, snow of the season and people are go out, going out driving and, and such and, and we have to be reminded of uh, the things that we need to do uh, when we get these seasonal changes to make sure that we all stay safe, including keeping an eye on those that could be vulnerable in situations uh, like this with uh, temperatures over 30 degrees and, you know, the old pets and people in cars. Uh, do we need another reminder on that? But uh, to give us all a, uh, a little heads up, Matthew Lawson is with us, Hamilton Public Health Services and is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
3: I am. Thanks very much,
1: Scott. So, uh, heat advisory in the hammer for today?
3: Uh, No, there is no official, uh, it's a heat advisory issued by Environment Canada, yes, Scott. Mm -hmm. There's no heat warning, though, officially that's been issued by the Office of the Medical Officer of Health. Um, Environment Canada early on in this season, because this is the first significant kind of heat event we've experienced has issued a heat advisory, just letting everybody know that, you know, there will be a day or two of prolonged, um, you know, higher than usual heat, uh, but still not enough to trigger what we would issue from the health department in a heat warning. What is that threshold, Matthew? When does that happen? Um, yeah, the, well, a heat warning is issued when there's two or more consecutive days forecasted with daytime highs that are greater than or equal to 31 degrees, and mm-hmm. the nighttime lows are greater than or equal to 20 degrees Celsius. Uh, and that's two or more days of like hot weather during the day, and it doesn't really cool down significantly below 20 degrees at night. Or if there's two or more consecutive days, Scott, with a Humidex rating of 40 or greater.
1: Well, it looks for this, this is just a short-lived one, uh, and by uh, Thursday, it looks like we'll be getting back to cooler temperatures.
3: Yeah, that's what the forecast is indicating.
1: So what do we do? Any advice? I mean, I was using the example of, you know, sort of like the first snow of the season. People are sometimes a little uh, forgetful about what we need to do, especially when it comes to uh, kids and pets and cars and people and such. Uh, uh, Any advice, any thoughts about as we head into this, uh, this season again?
3: Well, uh, you've touched on a few things uh, already. Just the the usuals. I hope that everybody, year over year, we're getting really accustomed because these these types of days are, you know, summers are just going to keep getting warmer with a changing climate. And so, um, you know, it's important to, when these events happen. Everybody should just be drinking lots of water to stay hydrated. Uh, finding an air conditioned environment a place like you know hopefully you might have air conditioning in your home, but if you don't maybe you have uh friends or uh relatives that you might be able to spend some time at their place or um you know there are there are places in the community that you can go shopping malls for instance during the day you could go to that are usually uh air conditioned um, when we do issue heat warnings um we do have a network of, you know, the Hamilton Public Library helps out by offering cool spaces within their branches. And, of course, the, uh, you know, the splash pads and the swimming pools within the city as well. And
1: what's the, uh, are those all open running now? Where are we with that?
3: Uh, the splash Spray pads and the beaches within the city of Hamilton are open and available, but the outdoor pools in the city of Hamilton don't open until the end of June. Right, the end of school. Uh, In terms of spray pads, you know, there are 61 spray pads across Hamilton that are open currently. And um, as well, in terms of the beaches, we have, uh, you know, Christie Conservation Area, Binbrook Conservation Area. Confederation Park, Van Wagner's Beach, Beach Boulevard, Pier 4 Park, they all have beachfront swimming available. And, um, yeah, and the pools will get online toward the end of June.
1: So not really concerned about it this time around, Matthew, as it's going to be short-lived?
3: Yep, that's what the forecast is indicating. And um, it shouldn't be – the triggers aren't, you know, matching what we would – we would really dictate as a heat warning need but it's it is something that environment canada did issue as hey this is just to get people's attention and to remind them that the heat season's coming and because it's so early uh, to experience these types of temperatures usually we don't get this in the end of may uh, it's just uh, they issued this heat advisory
1: i'm guessing you're expecting uh, these facilities to be busier than usual this year just simply because where were have been for the last couple of years uh, this seems to be the first summer in a couple that we can actually get out and about
3: yeah, so the places like the, the spray pads and the, uh, the beaches I expect to be, uh, busier. Um, it's yet to be seen how busy the cooling centers will be if and when we open, or if they get, if they are open due to a heat warning being issued. Um, but, uh, you know, we did have services available still during the COVID period. Uh, if for people who were in need you know there were places to go to still within the city but um, yeah we have more places online within our network of cool spots that people can go to when a heat warning is issued.
1: Matthew Lawson with us Hamilton Public Health Services talking about the first uh, hot well the first uh, we'll say hot day of summer that uh, approaching 30 degrees not to the point of a warning yet but certainly an advisory uh, to be aware of what's going on and certainly those around you that might be uh, vulnerable and And the people in the pets and cards uh, remember that. Matthew, thanks so much for the time. Good luck.
0: Yeah,
3: thank you very much,
0: Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: COVID-19, when was the last time we talked about that? Uh, it seems like an awfully long time, or perhaps I just don't want to remember. I don't know what it is, but there was a time when we talked to this gentleman pretty much every day for, my goodness, a year or two, uh, getting updates and 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 just advice on how to deal with living during a global pandemic. So let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khaled, health policy expert. He is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. It's been a while. Yeah,
4: of course. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me.
1: And I guess that's a good thing. Uh, and the reason that we are calling, well, before we even get to the travel stuff, what are your thoughts on where we are this end of May, uh, May 31st, 2022? I mean, my goodness, it was two and a half years, it seems, uh, talking about this. What are your thoughts as to where we are right now?
4: Well, I mean, first of all, I do miss speaking to you and to all our audience who are listening to us today. <laughs> it might be a good thing that I'm not on the air as often because COVID, that means is declining and we're in a better shape. I just want everybody to know that I do miss my time on the show. Um, we are doing better. I mean, we know that, you know, COVID-19 is being contained throughout the world to a certain extent keeping an eye on the Omicron variant and its subvariant that are existing out there. Um, and I think that we're seeing an easing of restriction globally. Italy just announced that they're easing their restrictions when people no longer need to wear a mask or be vaccinated and just can travel with their passport to Italy. And we're seeing the same trend across the world. However, Canada did announce that they're extending their travel restrictions uh, for another month uh, for many multiple reasons. And this is the federal government will
1: continue to require foreign tourists to provide proof of being fully vaccinated. All uh, travelers coming to Canada, regardless of citizenship, must also continue to submit their health information through the Arrive Can app prior to entry. Is this still needed, doctor?
4: Well, I mean, to a certain extent, vigilance is always good. It's always good to keep screening on on COVID variants. So what, what we're trying to do here is keep an eye on any variants that exist out there. Now the decision to really extend the travel restriction is not quite clear as to what the science behind that reasoning is, especially as I stated earlier, that many countries around the world have eased those restrictions to a large extent. Um, And so I think that part of the reason maybe could be political, that the conservatives were the ones that put forward the motion for the federal government to revert pre-pandemic travel rules um but as uh, you know there is massive delays at airports and there's speculation that part of that is due to a Mm. shortage of staff but also that the increased screening and testing is causing delays as well um getting back to what we were talking about in the past
1: uh with vaccinations when they all started uh, finally arrived and such um, obviously, vaccination and, and being fully boosted greatly reduce your risks and the severeness of your illness uh, towards COVID nineteen. Uh, but does it stop the spread? And that's where some are debating policies like this: that vaccine does not
4: necessarily stop the spread. Does that is that point valid in this discussion? I mean, you could make that argument that the vaccine is not going to stop the spread. However, they do stop the severity of the disease and the Mm -hmm. impact it has on our health systems, which are two key indicators that we've used throughout the pandemic to test the measurement of our system. And it's resilient to be able to handle this crisis. So I'd actually argue that the vaccine had been an exceptionally effective policy and medical tool that really helped us to put the pandemic behind us now. I think part of the reason why we're able to have a nice summer where we're able to go out and we're lifting mask mandates and, and people are more interacting in social settings is the fact that the vaccines do work. If you speak to people around you right now, Scott, you'll know that a lot of people probably have COVID or had COVID Mm -hmm. recently, but their symptoms were mild. Almost none of them have ended up in the hospital unless they have a comorbidity or a co-disease. And so those are all great signs that tell us that the science does work, that the vaccines had a really important factor to play in the way that we handle the pandemic.
1: What are your thoughts, doctor, on where our hospital systems are now at this stage? Uh, I believe the numbers today are 808, 140 in ICU. This is Ontario numbers. But another interesting uh, uh, stat that's come out of all of this, too, is 60% of those that were admitted were admitted for other reasons and then test positive. What does that say?
4: Correct. So the evidence has shown the rates of hospitalizations related to COVID-19 has been decreasing week after week, which is a great sign. This just tells us that our system is going back to normal operating standard procedures pre-pandemic and that the severity of the cases in the hospitals are no longer really due to covid but rather to other comorbid uh, diseases that people might have. And this also makes sense that, you know, the system now is trying to catch up. So what I mean by that, we'll be able to address our, our long waiting list. People have been waiting to get surgeries and see specialists for quite some time now because of the pandemic and now you'll hear that specialist cares and hospitals are now catching up with those patients. We're seeing our cancer screening increasing, people's ability to book CTs and MRIs are on the rise. Those are all good signs that our system is slowly recovering from the damage that the pandemic had on it
1: we talked a lot uh during the pandemic doctor about how uh this exposed many flaws in the healthcare system right the way across the country and provinces from east to west west to east um do you are you concerned that we're that we're losing sight of those discussions. Are we going to at least attempt to, or try to fix this problem, uh, which we saw obviously exposed during the pandemic. We knew before the pandemic, but that obviously uh, brought it to to more people's attention. Do you think the healthcare system, and, and not only provincially, but across the country,
4: we're going to see those improvements made? is an excellent point you raised, Scott. I mean, two things I'll tell you for our audience listening in, that two of the biggest agenda items right now is long COVID. So we're trying to study the impact of COVID on people's long-term health outcomes, especially around children and youth. And so we want to see what impact people who have had COVID will have on their mental capacity, on their body, on their physical well-being. That's a big, big item that we're studying actively throughout the world, not just in Canada. And policymakers are paying very close attention to. The second one is that we are, exactly to your point, trying to make sure that any learnings from the pandemic are being adopted into place. And that includes innovation in the healthcare sector. You know, innovation stopped for two years because we were in an acute phase trying to triage the, the pandemic and not really in a place to put in, put forward innovative ideas like telehealth and telemedicine and other modalities that are important. So those are two big agenda items that we'll see a lot of emphasis on in the next few years for sure.
1: Well, uh, obviously these can become political issues with the pandemic that
4: we've been through. Will we see past all of that and just get the job done? I mean that's that's the hope. I don't think that's the re- that's realistic. I think we all know that politics and and health are really intertwined together. And there and politics often, sorry, and health often becomes politicized. And so the hope that yeah that the two can be separate and that no matter what political power. Uh, political parties in power we can focus on population health and making sure that our canadians uh, are healthy at all times and provided equitable and fair access to health care um i think that all political parties want that we just might they might have different ways of doing that Uh, good point
1: um so moving forward we only got about 30 seconds left so booster Boosters, uh, more vaccine. What's life going to look for look uh, look like for Canadians moving forward? Do we need like a flu shot to get one of these every year now? Do we
4: have any idea where that's going moving forward? We still don't have clear evidence of whether we're going to need another booster shot like the flu vaccine. I will say that, you know, for the most part, we look like we're, we're past the, the peak of the pandemic and we're now winding down and moving on. And so I don't think that there's going to be this big focus on it. I think that most health systems around the world are now seeing beyond that.
1: Dr. Maud Khalid with us, health policy experts talking about where we are now, uh, post-pandemic, hopefully, uh, with COVID-19 and what we've learned from it. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. We'll chat again. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too.
2: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton
0: Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 cxm
1: In case you haven't noticed, uh, the Queen is celebrating a major milestone uh, coming up this week, and I I guess all starting officially on Thursday in in a four-day holiday celebration for those in the UK as she celebrates uh, 70 years on the throne with this uh, Platinum Jubilee. Let's bring in Saad Salman, Royal Commentator, Founder and Editor of the Royal Watcher, and with us now. Saad, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
5: Yes, thank you so much.
1: So uh, the UK must be getting pretty excited about all of this because we've certainly been talking about it for an awfully long time.
5: Yes, the atmosphere here is just electric. Everyone's really excited for the jubilee, and even those who aren't really interested in the royal family, they're looking forward to just having a few days off.
1: So you're <laughs> there. You go. It's always about the holiday. Uh, so what's the buzz like there? You're there. Your feet are on the ground. Can you feel a difference? Uh, what's it like?
5: Definitely every. A little bit of the street is kind of decorated with flags and banners, and every store has a Jubilee special kind of storefront up. It's very kind of, everything is in a uh, celebratory mood. People are really looking forward to this occasion to celebrate, not just the Queen, but also the U.K., and so, you
1: know, we often hear people who uh, maybe aren't necessarily fans of, of the Royals and, and want change and such. Is there any of that sort of uh, element through any of this celebration to this point? Or is it all about the 70 years and just the
5: celebration? Definitely. We've seen kind of uh, in the UK, there's the Republic, which is kind of the main um, group that does work against the Royal Family. They have put up some banners and stuff. And uh, we have seen some discontent from uh, communities in the UK and around the Commonwealth about kind of addressing uh, past legacies of the British Empire. But definitely uh, for this weekend, the mood is totally focused on the Queen and kind of celebrating not just her, but the achievements of the past 70 years.
1: Do you think this is a relaunch or uh, a reboot of the of the royal monarchy here? Saw it in the sense that uh, it's her seventieth jubilee. Uh, Charles has already started taking over uh, some of the major events. She's not going to participate as much or has been as much as as she once did. Even though my goodness, she still keeps to to just trooping on through all of this. Do you see this as a turning point? This jubilee.
5: Yes, in a sense, it is. Uh, I think for most intents and in purposes, this is probably the last time any of us will see the Queen in public attending such major events. Even if the Queen does uh, reach major uh, um, kind of milestones in her life and her reign, given her mobility issues and her age, it's very unlikely she'll be able to participate. So, this is very much, you can feel this kind of handover, in a sense, going on between the Queen and then the younger members of the royal family and handing over duties and all sorts of events. So it's a kind of a big final send-off to the Queen and her duties.
1: So I guess this all officially gets underway uh, on Thursday. Is that accurate? Is that when the festivities officially kick off? What's happening? How does this officially start?
5: Yeah, so uh, basically every year the Queen has a, a parade called Trooping the Colour, in which it's a military parade. The royal family drives down in carriages from Buckingham Palace down the mall into Horse Guards Bridge. They had the rehearsal last week, which I was lucky enough to uh, attend and see kind of all of the various kind of military engagements. Everyone's in uniform, there's horses. It's quite a um, lavish spectacle. So after that, I believe it's an hour and a half of the Trooping the Colour, the Royal Family returned to Buckingham Palace and appear on the balcony. So that is going to be launching off the Queen's, Jubilee that evening, there's going to be a lighting of Platinum Jubilee beacons around the UK, and those will go across the Commonwealth in in capital cities, including in Ottawa. And sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. So, those will be lit at the same time in the evening of Thursday. The following day, there will be a service of giving. Then, there's a Platinum Jubilee concert outside Buckingham Palace, which has kind of stars from around the world coming to perform. And the final event is a big Platinum Jubilee lunch and a pageant.
1: So how much of this will the Queen actually be in attendance for? We know that she's had a reduced schedule of late for obvious reasons. Uh, how much of the Queen will, how much will we see the Queen at any of these functions?
5: So the palace has definitely told us that her attendance is not uh, expected. So it will depend on how she feels on the day itself.
1: And, and how does this all end off at the end of the weekend?
5: So the end of the weekend ends with this big uh, pageant of, with 5,000 people from across the U.K. and the Commonwealth kind of parading uh, through the streets of London. With It's a big kind of carnival of theater, music, and costumes, celebrating the Queen's reign and honoring kind of people across the country. So Is it's going what... be quite a big, lavish display, and that will be the end of the celebration on the 5th.
1: Is this one of the coolest celebrations you've ever been to? One of the coolest experiences is being a royal watcher? Yeah.
5: Oh, no way about
1: that. How long are you there in total, Sot?
5: So I'm there for um, until around 12 days. I'm going to come back to Canada on Saturday.
1: All right, and we'll hopefully chat again and enjoy it. Uh, Take it all in. Saad Salman with us, Royal Commentator, Founder, and Editor of the Royal Watcher, as things get underway for the Queen's Jubilee. Good luck, and uh, have a great time. Thank you. I want to give you an update on uh, that situation uh, involving the gun call at White Oak School in Halton and bring in Constable Steve Elms with uh, Halton Regional Police. He's with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, no problem thanks for having me on can you give us an update here on on the status of this and where we are with this situation right now what has happened
6: yeah so we got the call at just about 2 30 p.m today for uh, reports of a youth with a firearm at uh, white oak secondary school that's here in oakville uh, we placed the school into lockdown and put other schools in the adjacent uh, area into hold and secures and at that point our officers um attended and entered the school and conducted a methodical search trying to locate the suspect um, at about 3 30 p.m we were able to do so sorry just before 3 30 uh, located the suspect. He was a youth um, located within the school, and he did have a replica handgun on him at that time, so that was seized. Happy to report that there's uh, no physical injuries reported. Um, you know, a scary situation for everybody involved, you know, especially the students and staff, but uh, as I say, at the end, it's a, a positive outcome that nobody was hurt.
1: So I just want to reinforce this was a replica gun that was used uh, that, the, the, that the person had in the school.
6: Yeah, that's correct. And the, the problem is with, uh, with the replica handguns, um, you know, from the, the, the normal layman's sermon and the layman's eye, it's, it's very difficult to discern what's a, what's a real and what's a replica handgun, right? So until mm-hmm. we can confirm uh, that it is a replica, uh, we're going to treat it as though it's a real firearm. And, you know, that's the kind of response that, that they saw to You know, multiple officers, tactical unit entering the school and, you know, um, very stressful for everybody involved. But again, happy to uh, at least report that there's no physical injuries
1: what's the reaction to staff and students when something like this happens constable
6: uh i mean i wasn't in the school uh i can only imagine what uh what that reaction would be like Uh, it'd be speculating but i mean i'm sure it would be uh confusion fear um all that sort of thing right um you know i I know the schools do practice their lockdown drills and hopefully uh you know everything that they practice were went uh went smoothly today and this person
1: was apprehended within the school is that accurate
6: as well that's correct yeah they're arrested inside the school
1: and how long did that happen after you first arrived, from the time you first arrived? Uh, my Any understanding idea? is
6: that the, uh, the uh, this happened just before 3.30 p.m., so within an hour, we were able to uh, get into the school, uh, locate the person responsible, and, uh, and safely arrest them. All right.
1: Well, uh, at this point, um, the lockdown is over, and everything appears to be safe. Is that accurate?
6: yeah that's correct there's no uh, no further ongoing risk to public safety at this time. The lockdowns and and cures have been at, lifted at all the schools uh The students were um, sort of escorted out of the school by officers where they could you know meet their their friends and family so uh, there was a bit of a handoff there to the to the parents and a bit of a conversation so that uh you know there's a, a transmission of information back and forth so uh you know hopefully hopefully everybody goes home tonight and have a peaceful night
1: wow that's uh what about something like counseling for this i mean is that something that uh because it's pretty it's pretty frightening to have all of a sudden the tactical unit show up at your school
6: yeah absolutely um you know as i say there's, there's lots of we, we have a victim services unit that we can provide counseling for if anybody um you know feels they need so or you know certainly don't don't hesitate to reach out to to anybody to to talk about it if you know if you're finding that. Uh, Uh, This is traumatic, and as I'm sure it would be for for many people involved. Constable Steve Elms with us, Halton Regional
1: Police, talking about uh, the gun call at White Oak School, which turned out to be a replica gun. Steve, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Stay safe. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. So uh great news there in the fact that nobody was hurt and uh a, a suspect has been arrested and uh and then we find out at the end that it is actually a uh a replica gun. And what I was telling you earlier was that uh my son's friend had sent pictures of this person coming into their classroom with this gun and then everybody scattering. And it is twenty seconds of video. Whew, you don't wanna see.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: Obviously, we've heard lots, we talked about it yesterday, about uh, the independent report uh, from a Supreme Court justice in regard to the sexual misconduct uh, of the military, that being released yesterday. One of the recommendations is that military courts no longer handle sexual misconduct cases. To talk more about this and if it will mean change, let's bring in Kat Owens, Project Director with the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, LEAF, and is with us now. Kat, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
7: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: So your thoughts on what came down yesterday with this report? Do you see change coming?
7: I think the, the key takeaway for us is, is to really stress that we need action to result from this report. We, we've we had three at this point from former justices, and mm. this really isn't a case where we need to wait for the full court to rule on this matter. We know that sexual assault and harassment is a crisis in the Canadian armed forces and that CAF efforts to fix the problems have failed. Uh, I'll say that I think that the Report does an excellent job laying out clear recommendations. And I do think that if the recommendations are followed, there is the potential for change. But again, the the most important thing is for the recommendations to be followed.
1: What about the recommendation that says that this is no longer uh, in the military courts, that this goes out into the public system? uh, So it's not the military policing the military. Does that uh, how much weight does that have?
7: I think it's safe to say, uh, and I think many people who work uh, in sexual responses would acknowledge that the the civilian system, the criminal system is far from perfect, but it is definitely an improvement uh, from what was happening within the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, You get that independence from the chain of command, which is important both factually, but also to rebuild trust for people in reporting crimes, trust that's really been eroded through the military's failure to handle these cases. Uh, It allows for civilian input and oversight over these cases, and also the civilian system handles a much larger number of these cases and has more experience with it. Uh, so my understanding at this point is that the the government has said that they will take a look at this particular recommendation. They haven't committed to implementing it, it so far, but I do think it's something that would be very important to, to move forward on.
1: Uh, as you mentioned, three reports, uh, that inside of seven years, um, that has to make a lot of people skeptical, cynical.
7: Absolutely. And, and I think that skepticism is perfectly reasonable. They We've seen this far too often with reports that come out and end up sitting on a shelf gathering dust. Uh, I'm heartened by um, former Cesar Bohr's insistence that a monitor be appointed to report back on how the recommendations are implemented and also the point about uh, requiring the Minister to indicate to Parliament before the end of the year which recommendations will not be acted on. I, I do think it's important to keep the, keep the recommendations, keep this issue in the public limelight so that politicians uh, and the Minister are forced to, to act, and if they don't act, to be accountable and to explain why they're not acting on a particular recommendation.
1: All right. Uh, the independent report on sexual misconduct. Third in seven years has been released. Will we see action? Kat Owens has been with us, project director for the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. Kat, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
7: Thank you. You as well.
0: Scott Thompson satisfied with an answer. He'll delve
2: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
1: This is an interesting headline coming out of the CBC. Leaked photos of Uyghurs interned at China's detention centers. Uh, Activists calling these uh, images devastating. Thousands of files were hacked from police computers by a consortium of investigative journalists and such, and uh, they are determined to release these images uh to the world and that is what is coming forward charles burton is with a senior fellow with the center for advancing canada's interests abroad at the mcdonald laurier institute and is with us now charles thank you for the time i hope you're well
8: good afternoon scott
1: so uh, obviously charles you've chatted about the uyghurs on this show for for many years uh what do we know from this information that has been leaked what can you tell us of the significance of this
8: well, it, the you know the the police files of one county in the Xinjiang region, where the Uyghurs live in the People's Republic of China, uh, has uh, allegedly been hacked uh, by and who knows who, but the the files have been handed over to the international consortium of of journalists and have been examined. They look pretty credible and they consist of a huge cache of photographs showing um, the police dealing with the Uyghurs in these concentration camps of which, you know, there are, we can tell by satellite imagery, thousands in in that region uh, containing something like one or two million people at a time. And, uh, you know, the files, show police procedures, which includes uh, shooting to kill if the Uyghurs are able to escape. So it confirms our worst fears of what's going on uh, in that part of China and certainly refutes the Chinese government's um, uh, stance that that these are not concentration camps, but are educational and vocational schools, which the Uyghurs have Entered willingly, you know. No one really gave that any credit, anyway. But once you see the pictures and you see actual people, um, you, you know, depicted as being in these uh, horrendous prison facilities, it really brings home how bad the situation is and how real uh, the fact of genocide in that part of uh, China against this particular uh, ethnic minority is. What do you think these images
1: will reveal, and will these images pictures get out?
8: Uh, yes, uh, they they have been uh, quite a number of them already published, and they've been vetted by uh, specialists in this area, like Adrian Zenz, uh, who who has written extensively about the Wiggers, and you know it shows them in the camps looking pretty terrorized. And describes um, the police procedures for how they deal with Uyghurs who are not uh, fully compliant, and how they prevent, uh, you know, the Uyghurs from protesting or attempting to escape. Um, you know, some of the depiction is that grandmothers have have been sent to these camps simply for um, uh, praying uh, to Allah. So. You know the the purpose of the program is to try and take the Wager out of the Wager. That's where the genocide is. Uh, you know they also have um, uh, enforced birth control to restrict the uh, the fertility of Wager women so that the Wager population reduces. But primarily they want them to cease their all their cultural practices, their their literature, their history, their language, and their religious practice into and to become uh, assimilated into the Han Chinese mainstream. So, you know, it's a very hard process to do because obviously people want to cling to their to their identity and culture and language and trying to uh, force it out of them through these extremely repressive measures is a gross violation of human rights, crimes against humanity, and ultimately genocide because they're trying to eliminate the Wig reality
1: you talked about these images adding more confirmation to to this issue. Anything new from these uh, and and what happens to this information moving forward? What will world reaction be? What will leadership, how will leadership react?
8: Well, the U.S. government has has issued quite a strong statement with regard to it. The Chinese government claims the whole thing is faked and that these thousands of images have all been created to you know, by hostile Western forces to try and uh, call the Chinese government's um, compliance with human rights norms into question. Um, you know, Canadian government doesn't seem to have responded, uh, as far as I'm aware, which doesn't completely surprise me. But I, I do think that that for anyone who sees those images, the fact that this is going on in China becomes much, much more. Um, uh, apparent and forceful in our minds and so the question is really should canada continue to have a policy of attempting to to improve relations with china and and further engage with china in all spheres economic uh, social cultural diplomatic as uh, our minister melanie jolie uh, just uh, uh, announced in an interview last week that That, you know, now the Michael situation has been resolved from her point of view, it's time to try and get our relations with China back on track. But I mean, how much relations can you have with a government that's complicit in these sorts of crimes against humanity? I I really think it's very hard to separate that from, from, you know, trade and economics and polite diplomatic interaction.
1: Are Weger still being apprehended? Um, Because I would imagine, obviously, they don't want to get caught practicing in any way because they'll end up in one of these institutions. Uh, So how are they being discovered? How are they being captured, for lack of a better phrase?
8: Well, China's put in uh, probably the world's most sophisticated surveillance system in that part of the world. So, you know, um, cameras everywhere that That have facial recognition technology um you know the the need for wagers to to have special passes to move from place to place their their telephones are monitored they're not able to communicate with their relatives abroad and they seem to you know be brought into those camps for relatively um just under suspicion of of trying to be wagers. so you know men growing beards or or um people with Islamic names seem to be just brought in there and, and subjected to this treatment. The ones who um, you know have successfully um, what one might say, graduated from these camps, in other words, where the brainwashing appears to have been successful, are sent to um, farms and factories away from, uh, from uh, Xinjiang to, to support uh, China's rise. And the children of those who are in the camps are put into um, orphanages where they are uh, taught Mandarin Chinese, and you know aren't allowed to to realize their their Wager identity. The the Wager language is comprehensible to modern Turkish. You know these are really a very European appearing people. Not not uh, they don't they don't resemble the Han Chinese in any way, shape, or form. And how many in these camps? We've only got a few seconds left. Uh, we estimate something in the order of one to two million at a time out of a Wager population mm. of eleven million. So you know in these ones in the in this um, uh, hacked computer county, there are twenty three million people. And it looks like there are over three thousand uh, individuals depicted in the photograph, so that's that's the percentage that they're cycling through these facilities at present.
1: New images of the Wagers in China being detained and what they are uh, exposed to coming forward. Charles Burton with a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. Good to speak with you.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: We certainly know of the situation in Ukraine and the Russian invasion of and the war that continues on. I think we're in like day ninety six, ninety seven of this uh, already, and um, many, you know, concerned that it would even drag on this long. Obviously, Russia has Europe by uh, the you know what's in order to uh, to to have dominance over them with regards to energy, and now the European Union has said it is going to ban russian oil sales uh, from russia to the european union what does that mean how does the european union get by let's bring in dan mctagg president of canadians for affordable energy former liberal mp and he is with us now dan thanks for the time i hope you're well i am fine and thanks for having me scott so what does this mean how can the european union actually push uh, russia away when it comes to oil do they have that kind of clout do they have those resources
9: well, it's not that they have the alternative uh, yet, uh, and they may not get it for quite some time. But I think that the simple answer is coal. Uh, they're going to have to rely more and more on coal mm. uh, in order to offset uh, uh, their needs for their manufacturing, to keep up and uh, sustain their electrical grid, as well as uh, to ensure that uh, you know they keep themselves warm in the winter and that they uh, meet their manufacturing needs. Otherwise, uh, they'll, their economy will grind to a halt and you cannot rely on solar panels and wind which is kind of ironic no one's talking about that now oh sorry Hans except here in Canada because we think that's the way to go uh but at the same time uh Europe has uh has some contrition to and maybe some sackcloth and ashes that it has to wear because it went down this green road uh that leads to uh to less energy and uh, dependence on countries like Russia assuming of course that the uh, uh energy uh uh, they thought they could get from green uh, renewables uh, could could displace uh, the heft of oil, gas, and its
6: byproducts.
1: You know, it's funny. Germany was always on the cutting edge. Is on the cutting edge of this sort of technology, um, and 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 good for them. Keep going. Everybody is looking for answers here. But when they're building pipelines to. Uh, to Russia to transport clean, natural gas, I mean, that says something about where we are. Does it not to the world?
9: Well, it says something about their uh, short-sightedness and not taking into account the the real political designs of, of Russia uh, and, very much, uh, and very much playing into that. Uh, you know, they, they've allowed Russia to basically uh, have a free hand and finance that free hand in terms of pushing their, uh, you know, uh, their green policies. They knew this would not work out well. They knew full well after 30 years and trillions of dollars invested that things would not go the way they should have gone. And it's been a narrative that has been enshrined in, you know, all sorts of magical make-believe scenarios that things can work out much better if we simply wash away with, you know, uh, uh, wish away uh, fossil fuels. They now find themselves having not only uh, left themselves short, dangerously brought their economy to a standstill, drove up the cost of energy for uh, for consumers, perhaps driven away some manufacturing in the short term, maybe even the longer term, and now of course emboldened Russia. As I said, you know, up to now and even today, despite the announcement, which doesn't seem to be going anywhere, uh, since it's going to be a sanction by the end of the year. Uh, There is still the funding of one billion dollars in the purchase of natural gas and oil from Russia, saving up until the sanction. And of course, that sanction means little until, of course, we get to that stage where uh, they're no longer, uh, as Germany and the rest of Europe, buying their energy from uh, from Russia.
1: What can the rest of the world do to help Europe? Is there anything? Nothing.
9: Nothing. I mean, look, uh, we saw oil jump almost five bucks a barrel today, and then some some irresponsible type the Wall Street Journal said, oh, OPEC will come up with the, uh, the additional amount. Listen, OPEC, uh, eight out of the last ten quarters has failed to meet its production targets. So what you have here is uh, a, a bit of a bump in, in gas prices uh, coming on Thursday, maybe a penny or so. But the real problem is that it, you know, it's a bit of a head fake. And it, uh, it's, a, it's a very irresponsible headline that somehow, you know, tries to say, well, no, there's no big deal here. We can sanction the oil. We can get it from somewhere else. There is nowhere else. Unless we're talking Iran, unless we're talking Venezuela, unless we're talking you know someone who's got uh, a couple million barrels, the Chinese and the Indians will be going there a lot quicker than we will or Europe will in terms of getting alternative supplies. So you can't sanction on one hand and then expect someone else to provide you supply. This is a very dangerous situation the world now finds itself in, and um, unfortunately uh, we should have seen some effect. Uh, I'm not saying I'm not wishing for more pain. But well, we should have seen that $5 increase, maybe even a $10 increase in the barrel of oil today. Instead, you have fake headlines, very much like the kind of fake narrative around in, you know, renewables being able to displace fossil fuels, uh, you know, creating a bit of a short-term break. Sooner or later, uh, reality is going to hit us, and it's going to smack us really hard, Scott. I mean, I think inflation in this country is one thing people are starting to notice. But I find it passing strange to people talk about affordability, but then skirt around the fact that their energy, their green energy, is the main reason why affordability is being eroded in this country. Deliberately so, and we can't come to the rescue of Europe, even though we have barrels and billions of barrels of oil that we could sell them on a much cheaper, more uh, more environmentally friendly uh, basis.
1: European Union has banned Russian oil, or at least what they can. Uh, Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy and a former Liberal MP. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks, Scott. Have a good evening. June 2nd, the election campaign comes to an end, and uh, it is Election Day here in Ontario. Uh, As we get to the last stretch of this election, uh, what can we expect in the winding days down? Andrew McDougall is now with us, assistant professor in Canadian politics and public law with the University of Toronto and is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
10: I am very much. Always a pleasure to be here.
1: Uh, We appreciate it. And, you know, many have said that this has been a little bit of a sleeper election. What are your thoughts on this campaign as we get down to the home stretch here?
10: You know, just personally, I would have to agree. Uh, you know, it's been, uh, it was, you know, we knew this election was coming for quite a while. Uh, you know, we had, it was a very eventful um, first term for the Ford conservatives. That's to be, to be, uh, to be sure. But generally speaking, there hasn't been any huge surprises that have come across during the campaign trail. The polls have stayed very, very stable all the way throughout. It looks like we're headed for another uh, Ford majority government. And so it's, I think there's a little bit to that. I
1: think what surprises me uh, now, post-pandemic, is how much the priorities have changed uh, w- with voters and how things that were normally not in the top five are now in the top five, obviously for affordability, but especially housing. And I mean, uh, you know, we've talked about this for years and there's been chatter of urban sprawl and this, that, and the other, but I, I find it fascinating that this election, uh, all of the major parties, the Greens uh, just announced this last week, uh, they're joining the NDP, the Liberals, and obviously the PCs to build, uh, pledge to build 1.5 million homes. Uh, in Ontario over the next 10 years, are you surprised that, you know, for an issue that we weren't even talking about uh, last election that or or if we were, it was affordable housing. Now it seems to be uh, a top of mind issue for all four of the political parties, including those that weren't necessarily uh, pro-housing as far as urban sprawl and such.
10: Well, I think you're absolutely right that that seems to be one of the leading, if not the leading issue uh, in this election. And and you see sort of something similar at the federal level where all of the federal parties are also talking about housing and and the issue that it's playing in, in Canadians' lives. That as well as sort of cost of living issues inflation these are very important to people this is the kind of things that they want to talk about uh, and they're all kind of reflecting that um i think to a degree though you know i think this election is a little bit about looking past covid i, I think we're beginning to reach a new place here with uh, with the pandemic with very high levels of um of vaccination, you know, the fact that, Mm -hmm. you know, we've gotten through the sixth wave and, and, you know, it's now kind of the summertime and we're sort of on the the downslope on that. So I think there's maybe a bit of an appetite to sort of talk about what's coming next and what's coming next really is focusing on these bread and butter issues that Ontarians want to talk about.
1: It's funny, though, because, you know, I'm old enough to remember this uh, the first. Well, I'll leave it at that. Um, I'm old enough to remember when this was a non-issue. And it just amazes me that now all four of these parties, are now talking about this where was this discussion and, and it's not like Canadians are stupid we we could see this coming that there was a shortage of supply coming and and yet now we see all four parties jumping on where was this thought
10: you know a couple of years ago five years ago 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago uh, well, I mean, I, I think the cost of housing has been an issue in Canada for kind of a while. Uh, I think over the last couple of years, it's been again sort of eclipsed a little bit by uh, by the pandemic issues. But I mean, there's been a long time discussion about whether or not there's you know a bubble in in uh, in the housing market in in Canada and in Ontario. Uh, but again, I mean, as those other issues have faded, this and that bubble seems to have increased to, to the extent you can say there is a bubble. Uh, you know, it really has, I think, focused a lot of people's attention on on the cost of housing and how many people are kind of priced out of out of the markets that they want to live. In. and so this has really brought it to the the top of the political agenda so uh,
1: many are predicting a, a Ford majority that the fight is for second place let's talk about
10: that uh, Andrea Horvath her future where do you see this going yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, the NDP I think has always got a slightly you know more forgiving sort of audience because they are, tend to be a little bit of a third party. Uh, so you know, if a good showing is often you know I think something that you know the NDP is is a little bit more happy with. But I mean, Andrea Orvath has been around now for quite some time. I believe this is her fourth election. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, how this plays out going ahead. I don't think anyone's predicting that she's going to win this. So I think there's going to be a little bit more focus on uh, on what the results actually are. I've seen a couple of stories kicking around about what her future might be. Uh, I think everyone's probably going to wait and see, you know, what what happens on Election Day. And then we'll kind of go from there about what her future is.
1: Are we just expecting that she'll lose the position of opposition, of official opposition, the NDP?
10: I, you know, I, I don't know whether or not that's uh, that's going to happen. I don't want to make any predictions on that one. Yeah. Now, I think that's a big question, though, uh, as much for uh, the Liberals, frankly. I mean, they were kind of devastated in the last election. So I think there's a lot of pressure on Stephen Del Duca to show that, you know, the Liberal brand is, you know, still got a lot of life in it, that it can recover some of that ground. Uh, so I, I think he's going to be feeling a lot of pressure to show, you know, turn in a very good showing, even if I don't think the polls really suggested that he's got he's going to win, at least not at this point. Um, but I think a lot of people are going to be interested to see whether... Whether or not he can recover some of the some of the ground that was lost in 2018
1: is there a future for uh, for him or was he just in the position as as you said they they just took a kicking in the last election he's he's the next person to take over the party uh many thought he was too close to kathleen Wynn in the past uh government uh, can he move forward and and forge his path as a leader of this party
10: well it's always dangerous for a political leader to lose an election uh you know if um, I think a lot of those questions will become a little bit clearer after we get the uh, the final results. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, ideally, what he would like to see is a win, and you know, it's you know, anyone who's been around politics long enough knows there's always surprises, so you don't yeah. want to to say yeah. that it's impossible. Uh, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So I think, to a certain degree, it's going to focus on what kind of uh, parliament forms after this, and and whether or not you know, he surprises everybody with maybe a stronger performance that might change the conversation. Uh, but it becomes more difficult, you know, if he uh, if the performance is weak or weaker than expected. And and then I think the conversations about his future become more more difficult.
1: Andrew McDougall with us, assistant professor in Canadian politics and public law with the University of Toronto. Andrew, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. You too.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: All right, I want to bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. Uh and initially and we will talk about the uh the Texas school shooting, but also uh what we have seen happen here in uh, Oakville just this afternoon when somebody goes into a class, into the school with a replica. Gun. Phil Gerski is with us, uh, now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Very well, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing good. We saw a situation break uh, earlier this afternoon about a, a gun call and, a, and uh, a secure and hold situation in in an Oakville high school. It turns out that uh, somebody entered the school with a replica gun and such, and and uh, you know there was videos going around of this that the kids had uh, taken in class and such. And and it's just it's frightening, even though it, it is a replica uh, gun situation. But are we prepared here in Canada for this sort of? this sort of invasion?
11: Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I think yes and no. I think certainly we don't have the frequency of gun incidents that our American friends have. I think I saw a statistic, Scott, the other day, like this is the 200th mass shooting this year alone, United States. Yeah. It's, it's an incredible figure. Mm. You know, obviously, I, I think that our law enforcement agencies are doing the best they can with the resources they have. And for those who complain, well, you know, they shouldn't have taken such dire action against a replica, you don't know it's a replica. I mean, yeah. you know, you get a report 911 there's a gun in the school. You don't have the time to say, oh, it's just a, Whatever kind of thing. They, they they act appropriately, and that's what we expect our law enforcement agents to do.
1: Uh, this was a very, and as you mentioned, you know, it was just a few weeks ago, we were talking about the situation in Buffalo at the grocery store that unfolded, and I remember talking to a CBS reporter, and he said exactly the same thing you just did. Uh, sadly, there'll be another one next week in a different city, and we'll be talking about that one uh, as well. Uh, but obviously, the situation in with the shooting in Texas, uh, in, the, in the school, uh, many are questioning because here's a state, I mean, this is the state of the gun, Mike goodness uh where the police wait an hour before going in because the tactical unit hadn't arrived or what have you what are your thoughts on this especially in a in a state like texas i mean you would think even you know perhaps a a, a, a teacher or even a student might have been carrying are you surprised the police didn't go in
11: it's really hard to i think judge in this case without having the, the, the facts at hand but you know maybe in fact because texas is the state of the gun maybe the police felt they might be um you know out armed by this person i mean Hmm. they may may have thought that the person had weapons that the police themselves didn't have access to hence the waiting for the tactical a lot of fingers being pointed a lot of deaths may have been uh, may have ensued because they took so long again it's really hard to say but if, if the police are afraid scott what does that tell you about the situation in texas it means that they have credible information that there's far too many guns out there including some very lethal weapons that even the police can't handle so that this speaks for some action big time united states i would think uh, you, you know,
0: I
1: mean, I, I, I certainly don't expect any police officer to uh, to run and, and intentionally put their life on the line for a situation they know nothing about. I mean, they're obviously trained professionally to to deal with these situations. Um, that being said, I, I, even as you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a police officer, but if I was one, I, I mean, I, I think it would be hard for uh, t- to sit by and say, well, shouldn't we be doing something here? Mm.
11: No, I think it's a very good point. And certainly, you know, given the number of incidents we just talked about in the United States, I I find it incredulous that any police force wouldn't have the training necessary to deal with these because they happen all the time. Again, you know, if you're the local police in Guelph or or Kirkland Lake or something, it would be surprising you're not trained to handle Mm. these incidents. But good Lord, the United States, with all these mass shooting incidents, and in Texas especially, you would think that they have had some kind of instruction on what to do. So there are a lot of very serious and I think authentic questions at this point. Let's see what happens in terms of the police response to this. But people are, are really wondering, like, you know, why wasn't this stopped earlier? And I think those are legitimate questions to ask at this point.
1: Uh, we were even talking to the Halton police officer that was giving us the information that happened this afternoon. And, you know, we were talking about what it, it must be like for the students to all of a sudden have this happen. And then, you know, literally, it's, it looks like the army shows up. I mean, the tactical force and all of that. Um, and he brought up a valid point that he said a lot of the schools or uh, I guess the schools, do some sort of lockdown drill in order for this situation. And you got to think the same thing happens in Texas. Uh, you wonder if the students were more prepared than the police service was at this point.
11: Well, I certainly have heard, Scott, that in, in American schools, kids in kindergarten grades one and two are getting lockdown drills for shooters. Yeah. What does that tell you about society when kids in primary school have to have on their minds the possibility that someone walks in with an automatic weapon and starts shooting? High schools make sense to me. Because you know as well as I do that is you know, teens do get access to guns, whether legally or illegally at some point. And that makes sense to me. But, boy, what kind of society do we have when a kid in kindergarten has to say to his mom and dad, guess what happened at school today, mommy? I, I, we had a lockdown drill for an active shooter. I, I can't imagine my grandson going through that here south of Ottawa. Scott, that's for sure. Um,
1: my son knows somebody in the school, and he's got a video, a 20-second video, of the guy coming into the classroom. It is absolutely horrifying.
11: Absolutely. As you said, and and thankfully, nothing happened. Thankfully, it was a replica. So some kid with some kind of an agenda to scare somebody or whatever to settle a a vengeance, who knows what. But, you know, it could have turned out uh, much, much more seriously. And and thank God it didn't. But again, we don't have these incidents nearly the same frequency as our neighbors in the South do. Your comments
1: on the latest coming out about a handgun ban, your thoughts on that? Many have said that uh, that's not the issue. The issue is guns out of the United States. Others will say any gun around is an, you know, is an accident waiting to happen. Do you, do you think this will have much of an impact?
11: Well, it's hard to say. I'm not a gun owner myself. God, I have I have shotguns that friends have had at, at shooting ranges. It seems to me we need a Canadian solution to this. So yes, the the importation of illegal guns, mainly through criminal gangs, is a huge problem. We need to ensure that resources are there for municipal, provincial, and, and federal police in this regard. To me, I have not no problem with people owning guns as long as they're secured properly. And it seems to me if you're a, you know a, a handgun owner and you want to you know do target practice, whatever, you do so in a shooting range, and that's where the gun remains. I, I think we can have a civil dialogue about this got without talking about rights being trampled we're not saying take guns away we're just saying that you know it should be in places where they're going to be used uh, safely and effectively and sitting in your drawer in, in your in your basement or in your bedroom is not a safe place as far as i'm concerned
1: uh it's fascinating because we seem to talk about this um during political appropriate times or when there's a mass shooting in the united states um you know and again i'm not a gun owner so i got no i got no skin in this game at all in that respect but would the money not be better spent on the crime prevention in regard to what's going on and and those weapons coming across the border and border reinforcement as opposed to going to law abiding uh, gun citizens and saying you can't own these anymore
11: well, I, yeah, this is what I'm saying. I don't think that we should say you can't own them because there's legitimate interest in target shooting. There are people that collect guns, and I, ha- I, I like you. I don't own a gun. I, ha- I have no skin in this game, but I have no problem with a responsible gun owner owning a gun. But we should ask the question: Where should that gun be stored? But you're absolutely right. You know, there've been de- you know, there's talk about defunding the police, which is one of the stupidest ideas I've ever heard. And they're simply under-resourced. We've got a big country here with a lot of porous borders. We know where the guns come from, and we don't have enough women and men in uniform, whether it's Canada Border Services or the RCMP or you know Toronto Police or OPP or whatever, to do the job. So governments have to put their money where their mouth is and say, we're going to fund these, these police forces adequately so they can do the job that we expect of them.
1: Phil Gursky with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's mm-hmm. National Security Program and former CSIS Analyst. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Take care.
2: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's
0: News. Today's talk. 900. CXM1. All right. Hi.
1: Hi. That was it. Yeah.
0: Really? <laughs> all of that for that? Was, like you're I, kidding me? Was, not even a hey?
1: It's Hamilton today? Not even a hey? It's Hamilton today? Says well, come on. So Say, sorry. do the, that. Hey, That's it's, it's Hamilton today.
11: No.
0: All right.
11: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Anything else? You just want to hang out for the rest of the show.
11: I was gonna say Happy Friday, but it's Tuesday.
1: All right. So uh, so much for that. Uh, next time, next time, girls, come in with a script. Come in with a plan. All right. Have fun. All right, it's the heat. It's gotten to them. Uh, The kids are all in here because they're asking me about the situation with the uh, gun call at the Oakville School and are asking me for the latest information, which we were talking to a Halton Regional Police Officer earlier today. It was a replica gun, uh, and a person has been apprehended, and thank goodness. But there is video going around of this person entering the school, and man, it is just absolutely frightening. But let's move on uh good news and uh a positive outcome all right let's bring in scott radley host of the scott radley show columnist with your hamilton spectator you can read him there. coming in after the six o'clock news scott i hope you're doing well
12: you know I, i'm doing fine and that topic it's funny i'm writing about that for tomorrow not about oakville but there was a, a mm. report there was a a threatening message that was scrawled on a uh stall yeah. bathroom stall door and at bishop totus at ancaster yeah and saying that there was going to be we don't know the exact wording but there was going to be something on friday and yeah. you know what i'm writing for tomorrow and I, you know a little preview it what do you do if you're a
1: parent i know it's just started, seeing this video scott it was it was scaring the bejeebers out of me and it was it's like a buddy of my of my sons
12: yeah and in so, his classroom so the police the police are on this one in bishop Tonus, and bishop told us they're going to have uniformed officers there and probably i mean i look if i had to bet i'm not a betting man if i had to bet we know how the teenage brain works or doesn't work. Yep. I would bet that this was some idiot kid who thought this would be hilarious and didn't yeah. think through what the repercussions would be. And, you know, but are you sure? I mean, if you're a parent, are you sure?
1: Yeah, that's it. You don't and know. It
12: becomes really like a, parenting, you know, p- parenting. It's not I mean, parenting has never been easy. But I got I I I really do think that it's become way more challenging. I mean, we just went through the whole COVID thing. With what do you do? Do you send your kid to school? Do you keep them out of class? It's it's so difficult. And with these kind of things, what do you do?
1: Yeah, it's it's frightening, especially when we're talking about what happened in Texas, and and you know, yeah. although this is a much different scenario, it's still before you know any of the information, it's just as scary. Let me ask you about another thing, since we're talking about schools, uh, Hamilton talking about uh, a policy: whether when you get a new na- a school comes on on board online, uh, you don't name it after anybody because that's too controversial. Instead, you you just you know, public school number five, or name it after a street location uh, or whatever. So. It looks like Scott Radley High is out of there.
12: Uh, it's always been out of there. They would never na- if you saw my report cards, you know they're never naming a school after me. <laughs> yes. um, but, uh, no, I, I, I hate this. I think this is a giant cop-out. Mm. And if you look around, you tell me that, you know, Bernie Custis' school is a bad idea to name it after, you know, a guy, the first black quarterback and a trailblazer and an educator,
1: and, well, you, know, you never know without, what's going to happen or what's going to come out twenty years from now.
12: And you know what? We'll deal with that in twenty years. Yeah. But the but the fact is, presumably, if you're naming a school after someone, you've done a little research into them. And yeah, you know what? I know there's probably a Sir John A. McDonald Well, there was a Sir John A. Macdonald school here in Hamilton. Um, it, it's sort of it's a defunct school now because it got moved. But you know, and so yeah, down the road maybe you have this big discussion about things they did that uh, in, in the. In the light of current sensibilities, we see things differently than how they saw them back then. And, you know, fine, have that discussion. But I I just, I hate the idea, Scott, that what we're doing in our society is out of fear of anything going wrong, yeah, yeah. we refuse to have heroes. Because our heroes That's a valid might, point. might have done something in their life that was not perfect. And let me tell you something there is not a person out there who hasn't done something that isn't perfect. And if you dig deep enough, you'll find a flaw. You'll find something. Look, I'm not talking about OJ Simpson kind of not perfect. No. All right. I'm talking about, you know, it, it, there are, whether it's schools or arenas or con, or, or fitness, like a, 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 recreation centers or whatever. We have people in this city. We have them named after people and, Maybe down the road you're going to find one or two that there's a, a fly on them, but... By what happens place,
0: if that person
1: who's got the fly on them has just donated a bazillion dollars to some cause in Hamilton, like a hospital?
12: Well, that's a whole different thing. Now, for the record, just in case anyone's listening, as far as I know, that's not happened. No. Um, but, but, see, those are two completely different things. There's the one where you're a philanthropist and you give millions of dollars and they need right. it after you as, a, as part of it. There's another where you've just... historic figure,
1: yeah. Uh, i don't know to me this is this is rather than solving the problem this is just avoiding the discussion it's
12: running from it it's absolutely it is absolutely and scott again i go back to my point it's healthy to have heroes and i think you go into that discussion knowing that even your hero is not perfect and provided they don't as i'll use the example again go down the oj simpson route if our hero has a flaw it doesn't mean they still can't be our hero. We see them then as human, unless the flaw is so egregious that, you know, we find out something from their past that they were a mass murderer or their secret life or whatever. I mean, but yeah. by and large, it's good to have heroes. It's good to.
1: More on this on the Scott Radley Show. More brilliance. Host of the Scott Radley Show, Scott Radley, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. See
0: you. Say hi to the family. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live week afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900-CHML and online at 900-CHML.com.
1: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the two Wills for producing and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, this is Steve. I'm putting out a feeler
12: here. I'm just looking for a pool to crash in tonight. I do a mean cannonball. <laughs> Any takers?
0: Good luck!